Whilst you're waiting for the next episode of Travel, Food and Booze, have a listen to an episode of our previous podcast, Our Lives in Italy. Welcome to the next episode of Our Lives in Italy podcast, where we talk to famous people who also love Italy as much as us. Today's guest is Gina de Blasio, Neapolitan food expert and Italian through and through. Uh, yeah, I mean, I dare you to go to Campania uh, and find a caprese on the menu from November onwards. Yeah, because tomatoes just not in season. You know, and if you find it, it's like, well, you know that tomato's not fresh, so therefore you don't eat here. Good morning, Gino. How are you? Good morning, Craig. Not too bad. How are you? Not too bad at all. So how are things in England at the moment, generally? You know, okay. <laughs> I think it's like <laughs> everywhere else. Yeah. Still trying to figure out what's going on, what year it is, what day it is half of the time, so... Yeah, poke your head out the poke your head out the window each morning and sort of go right. Okay, what's it like today? For example, yeah, I think we sort of we first met each other as with anything in this sort of social media age began with a tweet. I think possibly, so yeah. we, we we met on Twitter. So we've been sort of conversing on and off then. Obviously, you know, maybe the tweets got a little bit more frequent during the Euros. <laughs> oh right <laughs> straight there yeah <laughs> let's no, start let's let's cross that bridge right at the start let's we? let's do it yeah let's get it out of the way <laughs> yeah it, it was it was a, it was a, it was a testing time it was a trying time uh but the yeah i think we we started obviously speaking because uh, many years ago and then we obviously throughout the euros i was a little bit more vocal um mm-hmm. and we we obviously then had a, a case of Italy playing England in the final. Yeah, uh, the less I say about that, the better. I think I tried to I tried to leave it for a week, um, and I was getting constantly bombarded with WhatsApp messages and, I mean, Twitter messages and all sorts. Mm. And then I think I just rised to the bait on the evening. And uh, started answering a bunch of idiots and then, and then had to leave Twitter. And well, I've basically after 12 years of building up an account, I had to I had to end that account, I think, and just give myself a break mm. from everything. Uh, but it was it, what I found interesting was the way Twitter has changed as well in those last 12 years to where we are today, where it, it seems that, you know, not even if you express an opinion, somehow you're beholden to that opinion for the rest of your life. Mm. Or if you were to criticize, it's like you can't answer back or there's a pile on or, you know, and that's the thing that I've started to notice with the platform. So, you know, taking the euros out of it, I think there's, there's positives and negatives with, with Twitter Mm. and, but bringing the euros back into it, I was just beyond glad that Italy won. Sorry to any England fans listening. (laughs) So, well, I mean, you know, to be honest, I mean, you know, I was speaking to my my Italian friends beforehand um, and I expected England to be absolutely torn apart in the final because, you know, being an England fan for, you know, for a long time, um, you know, obviously dearly wanted England to win. But, you know, if you take off your rose-tinted glasses, Italy were by far and away the best team in, in that championship, by far and away. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. I think I think the Italians have got this thing where, as as a people, we are scaramantici. We are superstitious. Mm. So any kind of 
saying that we're brilliant or great is almost like a downfall. Straight away, you're, you're jinxing the team. And that's not, that's, that's not devoid of any confidence that you might have, but it's just you don't say it. You don't say it. And watching that Italy team, that was for the very first time that I've ever seen a national Italian national team play so unfathomably brilliant, you know, in the way that they would attack and all, all, all these elements of football, which, I mean, I've watched, played in, I've played in very good teams, played in not so very good teams, coached some good teams, <laughs> coached some not so good teams, that it was really nice to watch. But again, I think the Italian mentality of being very superstitious, and not wanting to count chickens before they're hatched was actually something that I noticed within the, within the fan base. Mm. And that's whether digitally or speaking to my friends and my family in Italy, compared to what I noticed with a lot of what was going on here. I mean, I went to the gym that morning and the gym owner just kept on loop, you know, it's coming home, you know, that, that song. And I was just like, really, really? (laughs) So, so yeah, so there we go. That's uh, that's your Italy and the Euros in a nutshell, I think, for me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, it was great because we went into the um, our little favourite coffee shop the next morning um, with one of our teacher friends, ordered the usual things, sort of, you know, Cornetti and um, three cappuccini. And then they came out, plonked them on the table, and over the three cappuccinos, they put, it's coming to Rome, which is quite... <laughs> <laughs> That is brilliant. Sorry. So, so yeah, you know, I thought was that that was absolute genius. But I yeah. mean, you, I mean, you probably sort of noticed it during the final as well that I was sort of biting back at quite a few sort of English fans that I knew there as well. Um, I mean, particularly you were, now, you were. Yeah. yeah. I mean, particularly now the what I think is the infamous one that everybody sort of everybody's hackles rose to was where I can't remember the Italian player where he grabbed one of our players right on oh, the Chiellini. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and people are going, Oh, that's awful. It's a red card. It's that. Well, if you've watched football for a while, no, it isn't. And secondly, he wasn't the last defender. So secondly, no, it isn't. It's, you know, it, it was more of a case that the Italians on the night were more professional and they knew how far, they could push the referee as well before the referee yeah. broke. I mean, there were five. There were five Italian yellow cards, and there was one English yellow card. And yet, if you were, you know, this is the thing. If you were to go forensic about it, you could easily point to the injuries sustained by some of the Italian players, mm. where they are bleeding through socks. You know, and. Are those not bookable offences? Are those not red card offences? You know, it, this is the thing. And I think, again, uh, it's about how we temper our emotions in these things. And like I said, at, at the time when when everything was kicking off quite severely <laughs> on my my Twitter feed because of, uh, because of something that I'd put out there, which I, I'll be honest, I still stand by. Mm. in the essence of what that message was. And I'm not going to be repeating it to any, any podcast listener unless they want to get in touch with me directly. Uh, I'll be more than happy to. But the, it, it, was not, it was not an indictment of everybody. It was an indictment of the situation that's been created. Those mm. scenes that day in, 
in 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 London in Leicester Square uh, outside of Wembley were disgusting, and you know it's time to start calling it out for what it is. So it was um, it was a situation that happened, and yeah, I mean, but again, I think I think again, it's it's the football play, the players on both sides are players that you can admire and enjoy. Yeah. You know, be, it, and, and really and really just applaud. I mean, it's, it, you know, as you said, I mean, the, the scenes were ridiculous. I mean, particularly, you know, say the scenes inside Wembley Stadium as well. Um, people breaking into, breaking into the stadium and the, you know, the, the person with a firework up his, up his bottom. I'll say bottom because I don't want to tick the explicit tag for, for this one, but... Yeah, <laughs> um, you know this sort of thing. It's just you just look at it and just think, what is going on? What really is going on in the world? I mean, and and that wasn't the worst thing. You know, usually that would be almost be like a kind of a a, a bar setter. Mm, yeah. <laughs> What's the worst thing that you can do as a fan outside a stadium? Sticking a flare up your bottom, right? Mm. That wasn't even the worst thing. That was actually quite low on the list of bad things that happened that day. And, you know, that's, that, that's, the, that's the shame and that's the tragedy. You know, the, the funny thing is as well, the day after the match, so in the lead up, in the UK, the lead up to the game, was it was it's coming home it's coming home it's coming home we are brilliant we are amazing you couldn't i mean there was stuff that i was watching on regional tv in the northwest the northwest has got a a good enclave of um italian second third and fourth you know generation um families and there were there were mancunians quite happily saying i hate italians and i'm italian it's like well then you hate yourself Hmm. There's, there's the weird logic about this. Um, but, you know, out of all of this that, that had been developed, you know, you, you're, you're watching these scenes on TV and you're going, is this really the best advert for the country? Yeah. You know, After everything that everybody's faced, is this the best advert? You know, you've, you've got, as you said, you've got a country that, that's coming out of one of, you know, one of the worst... Um, epidemics that Europe's ever had Um, and then you know you've got them saying well we want to be you know well we had the Olympics in 2012 you know which went off pretty well and now we're sort of screaming for the World Cup you know that there's absolutely no way that that's ever going to happen at the moment but it's as you said not exactly the best advert for Britain and one of the many reasons sorry my British listeners but one of the many reasons why you know I don't particularly want to live there at the moment but that's I think that's another podcast for another day which we we can have but it's uh, (laughs) it's uh, it's certainly interesting like I said I think the the tone and the language and everything over the last few I'd say you know the last few months people people are on a short patience with with others and Mm. it's seeping through in day to day and you know i i am as much at fault for for allowing it to get to me as well as responding to it so you know i i'm seeing it i'm witnessing it i'm noticing it and it's uh i think we all just need somebody to come in when the echelons of power and just say Let's be sensible. Let's calm down. Mm. Let's not attack. 
lifeboats for god's sakes yeah um yeah as you said we could we could have a very long podcast about about it maybe i'll do a spin-off politics one because you know i would be just like one of the two old men in the in the balcony on the muppet show just basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah now i've hit 50 i've turned into my dad and everybody's an idiot but <laughs> <laughs> as I say I think that that as I say chat for chat for another day as well. But sure. you know, I, I, I don't think we can sort of sum it up any better than that, to be honest. But so let's pretend it's sort of Twitter in the olden days. Let's go on to the fluffy stuff then. Yeah. So, so what about what about your childhood then? So talk about sort of life and food experiences because the little I know about you, obviously, you know, sort of you've lived in Italy for a little bit in your childhood as well. So what, what sort of memories do you have from your childhood? So, I mean, I think one of the big food memories I always have is uh, as a child, when, when we came to the UK, going to a friend's house for some food was, it only happened twice because I remember going back and complaining to my mum about how bad the food was. <laughs> and uh, it was one of those moments that I remember very vividly. My mum saying, if your friends want to come here and eat, that's not a problem. But if you're going to go to somebody else's house and eat, I'm not having that. Right. The, the, and, 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 and to put this into context, you know, we grew up as a very, as a very, well, not, it was, it was a, a poorer existence uh, when I was a child and okay. my father self-employed. So money was very, very tight. And when you've got two Italian immigrant parents who have been raised with food in the household as being something that's precious. This is by the purest definition of the word cucina povera. Yeah. You know, my, my father was working, you know, between 16 and 18 hours a day. Mm, my Jesus. mother was having to, you know, pick up working roles where she could and then basically be with me and my brother because we had no other family around. So food for us was, this was actually a teaching moment. It, it taught us about how to budget. Mm. It taught us about the importance of being sat around a table and eating. And it taught us about actually the quality of produce. You know, it, it, those were the main, those were the three big lessons. And those are the three things that I learned at a very, very young age. The divergence between myself and my brother is my brother never cared about how it was made. Mm. Whereas I developed a much more, I mean, morbid fascination about technique, style, uh, ways that it could work. And we're talking about dishes that were like three ingredients, four ingredients. Mm. And uh, the, the biggest memory, one of the best memories I've got actually was, I think I was about, <laughs> well, 11, 12 years old. And we would see so pasta wasn't a big food in the, in the early 90s in the uk you'll remember this i mean it just there was yeah. there wasn't supermarket aisles full of it there was yeah. a little section 
And it was usually called as well, like foreign food section, right? Yeah, lumped in with the Chinese and everything else. Precisely. There was one aisle that had Chinese. Uh, it didn't have Mexican, so it didn't have like old El Paso, all of that stuff. But it certainly had like your basic range of pasta, mm-hmm. which was only like almost two shelves and some tin tomatoes. And that was it. Right. And that was that was your 90s typical supermarket. If you were to go to a smaller shop, the bottom of the road today, I've got a little co-op about 400 meters from my house. I can pick up Lavazza coffee. Yeah, exactly. That in the 90s, you had to go to London and see the Lavazza sign. It wasn't even in Manchester, right, in the early 90s. So that's how much food has transported and taken us. But my one of my favorite memories was when went to a, a friend's house, and I must have been 11, and he, his mum really, I mean, she was smiling. She went, look, Gino, we've, we've got pasta. And she opened this cupboard and there was a pack. And I just remember going, rookie. <laughs> and it was like, what? And I was like, go, go across the road and see my mum and ask her to see the pasta drawer. We have drawers and cupboards full of pasta. And I remember even as a child having to make the journey to... Um, this, this was the memory, having to make the journey almost like once every six to eight weeks mm. to uh, a place in uh, Berry called Roma Delicatessen. And it was Italians that came over in the 1960s and 70s, and they'd opened a deli. And they okay. were basically the f- most furthest up north at that point, uh, stockists of pasta. And so we would go with my dad's van and literally fill the van with pasta. And we, we would come back and we, that is what we were living off, you know? And that's, that's when you knew like about the budget of pasta and we would get, and you know, we would get being given, you know, packs for free because they knew my parents, they could see how hard my dad was working. They're like, here, take this, just take, just Steve, just take this, Stefano, Mm. take this. And it'd be things like that. And it was, that was a real element. And I guess, yes. And then on top of that was community, what food does as a community. So these were all lessons really in, in terms of, of how my growing up with food was structured. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds sort of similar to sort of my upbringing as well. I mean, I'm originally from the Northeast and when I came along, I was, I was the last one of five. And at that point, my mum and dad were, were unemployed because the lovely Mrs. Margaret Thatcher was in power at that particular point. Um, and my dad sort of looked at it and just looked at the garden and said, right, okay, it's covered in lawn. That is absolutely no use whatsoever just basically covered, converted the uh, the entire back garden to an allotment patch. So it was growing, you know, sort of vegetables right. and things like that. So again, you know, it was, we were eating seasonally, we were eating healthily. Yes. I, remember, <clears throat> I remember one of my last abiding memories of my father at, at that particular house was the local council were redeveloping the area and changing the housing from council housing into private housing. And the digger was poised just at the fence of his garden 
and he was not going to let them through until he'd received his check in compensation from the council for, for digging up his allotment. So he was, <laughs> so he was basically oh, just parked. He was just basically parked at the end of the garden, going, "That's lovely, you know. If you want to come through, you've got to come through me. But until I get compensation for all this food that I've grown, you're not coming anywhere." Wow, wow! So, that, must, that must have really kind of shaped though the way you thought then about food and and actually authority, perhaps as well. Yeah, it's it's um, you know it's it's a case of you know the, the first time you realise sort of you know the what powers the powers that be have, and then you know but the the more important thing you know learning to the value learning to know the value of food you know is, is, is you know, exa- exactly the way that you put it as well, <laughs> knowing that you know I mean as you know the Italians are famous for taking things that are in season at their best, maybe three or four things and create, yep. creating an absolutely magical plate of food where there is some other food cultures may start putting in sauces and reducing and putting bernaises and God knows what else on. But when you have well, to... I mean, yeah, I mean, I dare you to go to Campania uh, and find a caprese on the menu from November onwards. Yeah, because tomato is just not in season. You know, if you find it, it's like, well, you know that tomato's not fresh, so therefore you don't eat here. Yeah. You, you just get an understanding of it. And it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, as you said, it's sort of learning, learning to cook with the seasons, sort of appreciate the seasons as well, which is, you know, one of the many things I love about living over here. Okay, so you've mentioned as well, obviously, your sort of Italian parentage, but what what other experiences have you had of Italy during your life then? Yeah, I studied in um, Florence for a while, and I did, while I was doing my, uh, I was doing part of my undergraduate course there, mm-hmm. and at the same time, the uh, the university, the, the lecturer, one of the lecturers just was like, how many days are you in uh, university here? And I went, two and he goes well if you do an extra day you can get your postgraduate at the same time so he made me do a postgraduate degree whilst everybody else was out partying <laughs> uh, and I, I mean admittedly i did go out and party but i was i was i was limited to three days a week rather than the four uh so that was um that was interesting yeah i've worked in milan um i've worked all, all across italy really i was used to work at the european commission and I was stationed out in Avellino and worked then between the Avellino, Napoli and uh, Roma offices as well. Okay. Uh, flying back and forth to Brussels, to Strasbourg, uh, to Maastricht. Well, you can't fly to Maastricht. You've got to fly to Brussels and then take this weird route into, into Maastricht. Uh, there was, yeah, my, my experiences of Italy are, are both working and even as a child playing in you know football football leagues and academies there and and things like this so it was all very it's been very mixed and I've been very privileged and honored thus far to have had those experiences and you know hopefully get to go back in the not too distant future and and have more of those experiences again. Mm. I mean it's you know it's it's, as you said sort of yeah I think when it was formed, I think Italy's sort of described it's not a country, it's just an amalgamation of different regions. So each each region's got its own distinctive character. So, Definitely. 
So, I mean, this this is probably a stupid question after having a look at having had a look at your tweets. But what would you say is your favourite place in Italy? So, my favourite city is Milan, which mm. annoys every single one of my family members <laughs> being from Campania. So, uh, <laughs> that's, that's something that I've got to be uh, be mindful of when I say that. Um, the look, Napoli is is beautiful. Uh, architecturally you will be really struggling to find a city that does what it does mm. I mean, there are things there that are older than rome let's let's be clear about this there are mm. things in napoli which are older than rome yeah okay. understand for me having had the experiences where i've lived in the uk there is a much i do have a much more cosmopolitan understanding and feel mm. for certain types of cities chaos the chaos that is in napoli is is not it's not a european style of chaos it is very much more like a a kind of um an, a middle eastern or an eastern style it's very much it's got a lot more uh, involved with those areas than it has with europe generally mm. um marseille is arguably very similar as well Okay. And funny enough, they're both port cities, but Liverpool, which is only 20 kilometers from where I live, is a port city. I call Liverpool the, the Naples of England and, and vice versa. <laughs> they're very similar. Everybody thinks they're a comedian. Um, they, 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 they hate the capitals. They, yeah. uh, it's, there's a strong sense of community. You know, it's very, very similar in terms of, in terms of how it's all built out. The the, but but for me, Napoli is my uh, uh, Milan is my favorite city. Yeah, there's just something about the way you can get around the city. There is something that you can. There is like a, a certain patina that's in the air. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've got that mix of that old and that new. And I think you see when you're raised in when you're raised by Neapolitans, it's like Milan is 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 not a nice place. Okay, mm -hmm. that's what you're told. Yeah. But spend some time there and you realize, do you know what? Anybody that's in Milan is not really from Milan. It's from everywhere else. Yeah, it's, it's basically a, a meeting ground for different, different people. And there is something that's nice about that. Also, you know, there you've got things like, I mean, there is, a, there is incredible Neapolitan theatre, but again, I, I prefer the theatre that's in Milan. You know, there is, there is a lot more just going on about it. The, probably my second favourite place in Italy is, is Bologna. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Definitely Bologna is a gorgeous place. Bologna is, again, incredible, but Bologna really appeals to the glutton that is in me. <laughs> the, the, the food snob that i can be is in bologna and it's it's just one of those situations where um again you go there and when you're from campania you think that you're having the best food in the world and i would argue that it is probably one of the best regions in italy to eat yeah but bologna trumps it Hmm. And I think Bologna is sort of referred to as one thing, sort of the Rossa and the Grasso as well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, 
it's the stomach of Italy. Uh, the, what, what you get, you see, and what you have in Bologna is you've got that meeting ground of the north and central Italy. The south doesn't really touch it. Mm. But northern and central Italy, which is known for its rice, its polenta, Bologna with its fresh pasta. Again, fresh pasta is a new concept, but Bologna's championed it. Bologna is the ground of it. You've got the salumi, you've got all the cheeses, you've got all of these things that they all come together and they make these dishes which are divine and they're simple, but yet they are done with a care and attention that if you were to make il ragù, you know, that requires the same amount of care and attention and, and, and patience. So, and this is when they make tortellini, for God's sakes. Mm. So it's, again, and, but then you look at the city, the city's got the portici, it's got, a, again, a certain patina, you walk around it, and you always feel like there's a debate to be had somewhere. I mean, that's Italy in, in, in a nutshell. Mm. But you kind of get that more in Bologna than you do in Milan. I think Milan, just people want to get on with their lives. And that's what I like about it. Um, whereas within the, you know, when you start to get towards Bologna, Firenze, you're starting to get that real sense of Italy in terms of go to a bar, let's have a political discussion. Let's leave as friends. See you mm. tomorrow for another 10 rounds. And you, you have that in Bologna and that's, that's a, that's a lovely area as well. Yeah. I've, uh, yeah. That, that's the fantastic way of putting it. You know, whenever I've visited Bologna, it always feels to me like there's, it's a theatrical film set. You know, it, it always feels as if there's, there's just some performance that's going to be happening just around the corner. So you said sort of the, the true the true essence of, of Italy. Um, and I think that was where my first experience of, you know, you, you listen to sort of Italians and they're having this really, what sounds like a really sort of um, a real argumentative discussion. But really all they're chatting about is what was the football last night or what's the best way to make the ragu that they're going to have for dinner tonight, for example. Precisely. I mean, that's they, and that's what they will argue about. They will argue about how to make a certain dish. Yeah. And that and that actually is the essence of Italian cuisine. I think maybe a lot of it was it was it was well documented when Jamie Oliver went to Italy for his break after the whole school meals thing. And, and he was traveling around in his van and and he said how frustrated he was about how in Italian culture, Italian food culture, you've got an element where this one village says that their thing is better than another village. It's not even regional. Mm. It's village to village. Yeah. Like they're the ones who created this. They're the ones who started. They're the ones who pioneered this dish or whatever. But what I think he has to understand is it's villages have always had to look out for themselves. You know, there are places that I've been to. So I'm from Campania my village borders on actually the mountain range splits up Caserta, okay. Avellino, mm -hmm. and Benevento. So from the, that mountain range that you can see from where I come from, there's three distinct areas of Italy that you go, still Campania. Yes, it's still Campania, but my God, they are different. Every single one of these little areas is different. And that's not even the villages. Those are the provinces. Mm. I mean, we've, we've got the same sort of thing down here, sort of on the south coast as well, because um, obviously sort of Sicily has been invaded by God knows how many people. Um, mm. And they used to have the same problem here on the southern coast of Italy as well. So everybody who used to live on the coast just retreated into the mountains. 
So from here, you've got Melito, then you've got Pentadatilo, which used to be the old town of, of Melito. Yes. Um, right. Then you've got Bova Marina, which is the new bit, and then you've got Bova Superiore and Condofuri Superiore. So as you said, because they've retreated into the mountains, because obviously the roads didn't exist, there's more tracks at that particular point. You know, these yeah. are only sort of two or three kilometres apart each, but each has its own sort of distinctive individuality, its own dialect, its own food culture. You know, it, it is like walking into different regions of, of Calabria in certain respects as well. So, yeah, I can definitely sort of identify with that. And I mean, the big thing as well. So when you talk about memories as a child or even memories as an, as an adult or and, and I know we might touch on this in a bit, but, you know, the the identity of like how you become a better cook or all these things, it's, you know, when they have La Sagra, so when they have the Sagra, which is basically an event that the village holds mm. that's for a specific food or drink product, these things occur over Italy all year round. And, you know, if you, if you were to say, right, okay, I, I want to understand Italian food culture, what do I do? Well, I'd say first and foremost, go live in Italy for six months. Mm-hmm. Start there. Well, whilst you're living there, attend every sagra that you can go to every single one move around the country go to different regions go to different towns and experience the differences in the sagra because you will start to see how come so many of these villages are so different even though they're next door to one another in in many cases Mm. and because what you've got are people who are from those villages who have spent the year either growing, cultivating, or working with other villagers, other friends, to go and get the chingale, to go, to go and cultivate the wine. And it's about that understanding of the bond between the food, the production, the identity that it brings to that local area that yes. makes all the difference. It, that's what makes the difference. That's how you understand Italian food culture. Like you said, it's not about like creating a, a Bernoisette sauce or anything like this. It's actually what's the raw ingredient? What's the raw material? Has this been cultivated correctly? Mm. That is Italian food culture because that is where they then make all their food from. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's taking the best ingredients at the best time and just making something simple and delicious. Yeah, I, being a, a bit of a glutton myself, I was amazed when I first came over to Italy. So living in, in Piacenza, when I first got over here, it seemed that there was a food festival or a wine festival or a, a festival of some sort every week. You yeah. know, whereas, you know, where you used to live in Nottingham, you, not, you had one food festival maybe once a year. So it's like, oh, it's tomatoes this week, chocolate this week, right, potatoes this week. You know, yeah. it's artichokes the week after. It's just like, you know, it was... For for a food lover like myself, it was you know it was like Christmas every weekend as far as I was concerned. Yeah. And 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 it's and it's the it's this thing where it you know again the seasonality like how you're like how you ate as a child that seasonality mm-hmm. seasonality determines everything. The seasonality is like yeah we've got chocolate yeah well how how come you've got chocolate well because it's been it's now cold yeah and this is when you eat the chocolate you don't eat the chocolate in the middle of the summer. 
where it just <laughs> melts in your fingers. You have you have it December time. You have it November, December, January. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's really and it's also as well. A lot of these producers that go to these things, they like say, "This is my work. This is the best of me." Mm. And there is a pride in that. And I notice how little of that there is in the UK. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's not, I, I don't think it's really, I don't think there's a platform for the people to show how good their stuff is. It's almost like, well, if you want my cheese, you know, come and find me. It's like, no, get out there. Yeah. And that way I'll always find you. I think it, I think it's cyclical in the UK, which is part of the problem. You get sort of, you know, you, you get your Hugh Fernley Whitting stores and your Jamie Olivers and people like that doing the Channel 4 programmes. And then there's this big sort of groundswell of support for, for artists and producers and people who make sort of products on a small scale. And then when people sort of don't want to do that anymore, it then tails off and every sort of trails back to the, you know, the big monolithic supermarkets of, of their particular choice. Yes. Um, yeah. Whereas, as you said, in Italy, it, it's, it's a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle that's in, ingrained from day one as soon as you yeah. pop out of the womb. So you've, talk, much, yeah. you've talked about your, your sort of your love of food. So how did you turn that into a career then, Gino? So it was always interesting because I always wanted to I wanted to find a way to to talk about it. And I remember that the. There was an, a period in my life where I wanted to be a chef. And then I had two really bad experiences in the kitchens, like professional kitchens, okay. which turned me off. And it was mainly because it was the 90s, late 90s. And it was still that whole attitude of let's bully anybody that walks into a kitchen. Mm. And, and not being the tallest at the time. <laughs> I mean, now I'm 6'3", and it's a bit of a different thing. But when you're very small and you're going into a kitchen, my God, you don't half get picked on. Um, and so it, it put me off. And I was just like, well, there's a different way I can do this. And because of the way I used to work, where I used to work and the people I used to work with, and they were always saying, like, why aren't you diarizing this? And then one day somebody said, why aren't you blogging this? Mm. And that was a new concept to me. As, as it was for many back in the early 2000s or sorry, mid, mid 2000s. And I just started writing about food and I didn't want to be just somebody that would review restaurants. Cause I thought it's not for me. Um, yeah. Market, satu- market saturated as well. So, and also who's going to listen to somebody that absolutely has no idea how this is made <laughs> or like or how it's done. And that's where I do get annoyed with food critics because it's, I think unless you have an incredible turn of th- phrase, you're, you're, you cannot, unless you have an inter- incredible turn of phrase or you are an ex-chef at like the highest order, being a food critic, hmm. you should not do. You should not have a blog where you are going into restaurants and basically saying, I'm going to write about you, what you're going to do on my bill. People like that deserve to be dropped in a ditch and burnt in, in, <laughs> in all honesty. Uh, and I've come across many of them over the times. What I, so what I did was I wanted to tell the history of the food. 
where if I couldn't find the history of the food, I actually find a way to talk about it. So the very first incarnation was something called Itozi. Okay. Um, and I was, I remember it was any, any food that I could find really something hilarious about or have an opinion about. And I remember there was one where it was almost, um, uh, pancakes and the amount of times that you can fold a piece of paper, there was a mathematical equation done with pancakes. Right. So talking about this and funnily enough, it was one of the only papers that Bill Gates ever submitted. <laughs> At college in America, where he ba- it was called like the pancake pancake stacking conundrum, and and I just remember that there was this story that also came out a few weeks later after I'd read that weird thing about how in America they were <laughs> they were using pancake houses as an alarm warning system what? in towns. Yeah, so basically. If the if the if the storm going through the town was strong enough to take out the pancake house, mm. it was known as a bad storm. So they'd say, "Oh, Tullys would go in this storm." So then people would realize, "Oh, I've got to board up my house, right?" <laughs> and I just remember that there was this really weird coincidence with Bill Gates doing the packet pancake stacking conundrum. So it started with things like that, where I was like, kind of digging out this pop culture and history of pancakes and pancake houses and then for a few years i did something called giro food which was all about the giro d'italia and whatever stage they were going to i would write not about the stage itself because i'm really passionate about my cycling but i would write about the food of that area or the food of that town but again Mm -hmm. trying to bring some sort of pop culture into it so like there's one town where there it's a strozza preti yeah, which is a type of pasta, but it also means the translation is uh, pre-stranglers. Uh, yep. Definitely. Why was it called pre-stranglers? And then all of a sudden, remember the Fellini film where there was a pre-strangler in the film. So then I would actually talk about Fellini <laughs> and the art of the Fellini film and then introduce, and in this town, they've got something called the Strozza Preti, which is where they think that the pasta's name came from. Hmm. Um. And it was things like that. And that started to get me noticed and recognized in, in certain communities. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was talking, I was going to, I was going to Manchester and I even went to London a few times to do these talks about like pop culture and food and, and all these things. And then in 2016, uh, 2017, very vividly, I remember I came up with this idea, this concept called the mouthful which was all about doing, you know, daily food content and having it as a daily food magazine. And that's Mm. where it started to become a bit more of a, well, much more of a career. And, you know, we had some really, really great interviews on there, like with Joe Fatterini and from the wine show and Jay Rayner even appeared on it. And there was, there was some really good, you know, chefs all from all over the world that were submitting content. And whilst I was doing that, I then got approached by a a magazine called 1820 Magazine uh, from a food photographer called Marco Paone, Mm -hmm. uh, an Italian who was also living in Holland. And, you know, he noticed the way I would write and the way I would piece together a story and what what it could be. And I was brought on originally as a translator. 
So all the articles written in Italian and I would translate them into English for the okay. magazine. And then we had to change the business model. And that's where my experience of digital media, blogging, uh, article writing, press releases, and all these things all came about, so which then became like a digital uh, model. And wow. that that went on for like two and a half years. And we were we were associated with the Alma Cooking School in Italy, mm-hmm. with uh, with Bina Moretti. We were, we were associated with quite quite a few, and we were getting invited to quite a lot of places. But as a business model itself, there were gaps, and it and last year it folded because as well lack of travel lack of being able to go anywhere mm. so that that unfortunately was as a business model it folded but that's how i really kind of got a career within food and food writing uh, and and especially talking about food culture in italy the italian food culture and, and food culture generally yeah i think it's you know you, you see a lot of blogs um you know out there in the, in the blog sphere at the moment and it does seem to be sort of like, you know, carbon copies of each other. So it's always, you know, a good idea to have something that's, that comes at it from a different angle. And I think, you know, say that's where I, I first got to notice you in sort of your writing style, which was, which was something that appealed to me as well. Um, as you said, sort of 1820 magazine and things like that. Thinking about sort of other things then. So let's appeal to the Italian in you. Your favourite meal when you eat out. If you could have any meal you want, money, no object, what would you choose? Okay, so my, so my meal I would have to be in Italy. Mm. And I'd probably say, even though I've bigged up Bologna and Bologna's food culture, this would be such a hard toss-up. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue between two pasta dishes. Mm. One would be one in Bologna, which is at a restaurant called Leonidas. And it's um, pappardelle con ragù del cinghiale. Uh, okay. That wild set my, bull ragù. I was going to say that set my stomach rumbling already because I love wild bull. And it's just one of the most incredible pasta dishes I think I've ever eaten. Arguably mm. one of the most incredible dishes. The other would be... Oh, this is bad. Uh, would be... No, because I'm just trying to think, who am I going to offend out of all of my aunties? And to be honest, I don't care anymore. Just tell them not, <laughs> but, tell them not uh, to listen to the podcast. That'd be fine. I'm, I'm a near 40-year-old man, and I'm still scared of these women. Uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> the, well, you, well, you got bollocks for buying a guitar the other day on Twitter. I, I did get bollocks for buying a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to when my mum comes back to the England and goes, what did you do? Uh, so... <laughs> I I would say that the it has to be spaghetti vongole. Um, yeah, my wife would shake your hand. That's one of her particular favourites as well. And but I would have it sporcata, so with a, with like the cherry tomatoes thrown in as well. Yeah, because that's a very campagna thing where they just throw in these like li- just unctuous flavourful cherry tomatoes. They actually squeeze them with their fingers and throw them into the sauce. And it just breaks down and it just adds like a, a different veneer. So I'd have that. So if I had to choose between those two, that that would probably be like the mortal fight in my head. And then probably as a main, you know, melanzana di parmigiana. Okay. Yeah. 
I think the simplicity of it, the the it's just completely delicious. I would also say though, like as a death row meal, a roast dinner is arguably, arguably one of the greatest things you could have. Yes. Yeah. When we roast dinner is done properly. Yeah. I mean, we introduced the family downstairs um, to a roast dinner for Christmas as well, because we, we decided, because they were forever cooking for us. And then when it came to Christmas, like, right, okay, you come up for an English Christmas dinner. And then we sort of presented them with this roast turkey and all the trimmings, Brussels sprouts, and God knows what else. You could just see the look of terror on their face to start off with. Yeah. But, but again, it was, you know, it's, as you said before, it's the community associated with food. There was that heartbeat where they looked at and going, well, it's not how we would do it. But then within about sort of two seconds, everybody was tucking in, chatting. You know, it's, it, yeah. you know, the usual I mean, York, A Yorkshire pudding, for me, is one of the most genius concepts. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's eggs, flour and milk, for God's sakes. <laughs> and it's a vessel for anything, basically. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, and, and that is within itself is something that could never be Italian. Mm. It's such a British idea. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And the reason why it couldn't be Italian is because if you're going to put eggs and flour and milk together, you're making a cake or a biscuit. Mm. You're not making something that is a savory, like you say, vessel. So again, you know, melanzana would probably be there. And, and my favorite dessert, you know, if this just sounds so cliche, but it's tiramisu, uh, you know, just, a tiramisu that is done with genuine care and attention, not soggy. The biscuit, mm. when people make tiramisu, you dip the biscuit for all of like a second in the coffee. Trust me, the Savoyard can take it. Yes. It needs to have a bite. It needs to have a crunch. The cream has to be done with mascarpone. It is not done with whipped cream. There are, there no. are basic rules about this. But you do a tiramisu, if you have a tiramisu that's basic, I think that's better than most average desserts mm. anyway. If you have a good tiramisu, that's better than most very good desserts. But if you have an excellent one, I think it's hard to be topped mm. as, as what it, the component. It's a zabaglione, for God's sakes. Yeah, which is... So uh, it, it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, my wife was has never been a fan of, of the tiramisu's that you know we've encountered when we've been in England. But when we went to Catanzaro a couple of weeks ago, we we're yes. in this fish restaurant. We had the um, we had the tiramisu there, and my wife eating it was just making some strange noises. It was just <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> I, it was just like, this is sounding almost indecent. And she just sat there just saying, this is one of the best things I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah. And, 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 and like, again, I think if you were to look at that menu and you say, really, that's what you'd have, I'd go, yeah. And let's look at the ingredients. You've got, if you have the spaghetti vongole or linguini vongole, it's linguini vongole. Mm-hmm. And all right, a drop of white wine. And if you have it with the cherry tomatoes, there's four ingredients. Mm. If you had the wild cingale, uh, cingale ragu, you've got pappardelle. That's one ingredient. You've got 
the wild boar and it's cooked low heat for many hours, basically in tomato and cinnamon because that's mm. a spice, a cinnamon stick. Okay, there's four ingredients. Parmigiana di melanzane, it's aubergines, tomatoes, mozzarella, three ingredients. Tiramisu, yeah. that's a little bit more complicated because it's a dessert. Italian desserts generally are more complicated because the whole pasticceria, the idea of what the pasticceria is, it is, it's an art form in itself. People, if mm. they want to study to be a pasticcere, do three years. You do three years of study to be a pasticcere in Italy. You know, I mean, and and you know what? It's always the it's always the lads, or always the lads and and ladies. But it's I'm I known this from my personal experience of having family in being pasticcere. Yeah, <laughs> it's always the ones that can never be bothered to spend three hours studying anything, mm. and yet they will spend three years learning that because it's a craft. Yeah, it's not theoretical, it's actually practical. Yeah, and it's it's also like this weird alchemy of science, like mm. all dessert making is. And you know, I, I I just admire it because you go to like you go to the bar in the morning, you have your cappuccino cornetto. The cornetto, what's that like? Is that like anything you have in the UK? No, not at all. Is it anything like you have in, in France? No, completely different beast. A different beast altogether. Again, it's about how food cultures from other areas, you know, come in. You know, the cappuccino was invented by an Italian watching an Austrian when the Austrians had control of Verona. Okay. That I didn't know. So there are, right. So all the coffee trade used to go up through Verona. Mm. Okay. Uh, And that, funnily enough, that's where tiramisu comes from. Because again, espresso Verona, that's where they've got the espresso. Yeah. But, um, the, the, uh, basically, the pan brioche was at mm. the same time because the Austrian patisserie bakers, when they controlled Verona, there was a man watching how they were doing it from afar. And that's why the brioche is different. And that's why the cornetto is different. Mm. And that's why different regions of Italy have a slightly different take on the cornetto and how that is done. Yeah. So, you know, it's not so much about the layering of butter. It's about the understanding of sugar to water to boiling milk ratios mm. and the flour and the flour types. Yeah, because obviously with the, with the Spanish sort of <clears throat> occupying us down here for a while, then obviously we've got the Spanish influences to it as well. Yeah, and it so it doesn't just affect language. You know, you think about it in Naples. Naples used to be called Neapolis. Mm. It was it was the Spaniards. Mascarpone cheese is yeah. from Milan, but it's when the Spaniards ruled Milan because it used to be called Masquebueno. So I'm learning a lot today. I'm learning a hell of a lot today. <laughs> so you know, there's there's so many of these areas where you you look at it and you start to go ah, and then when you think and you just take tiramisu as just a concept of a dessert and you go, this is how Italy tiramisu was invented in the nineteenth, well, late sixties, early seventies, right? At a restaurant called Al Foguer, which is now closed down, right? But in mm. Verona, they have La Sagra del Tiramisu. They've even got the Museum of Tiramisu because <laughs> they're trying to really claim everything about it. But coffee was was through the coffee trade. 
The biscuits are Savoyardi. Savoyards were in Genoa. Mm-hmm. Zabaglione is a traditional Piemontese uh, dessert, the Zabaglione, which is the egg yolks and sugar beaten together. Mm-hmm. Mascarpone is, again, Milanese, so it's Lombardy. So you've got Lombardy, Piemont, Liguria, and Veneto. And they've all come together to make this dessert that is based on an English trifle. Yeah. And why is it based on an English trifle? Because Italians have learned with the zabaglione, with the finger, with the sponge finger going into the into the uh, egg and sugar mixture, because that was from the royal house of the Savoyards, and the Savoyards used to have an English chef that was sent over from one of the kings. Mm, okay. the 18th century, 17th, 18th century. So this is how food culture changes. And this is kind of like where you start to see a modern interpretation of those things. But again, it's about fewer ingredients. So mm. yeah, <laughs> that's a bit of a door opener in terms of all the kinds of things that you can think about with Italian dishes and where, where they all come from. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to open up my eyes a little bit more when I'm going around Italy trying to find all these little food stories attached with everything as well. But So what about your plans for the year then, Gino? Now, hopefully everything, fingers crossed, starting to open up. What's your plans yeah. for the year? I'd Well, I'm looking at trying to get a flight to Italy sooner rather than later. I think it's probably going to be mid-September and mm. hopefully get to see all the family again because I've not seen them since December 2019. So that'll be nice mm-hmm. to see them. Uh, nearly two years. And then I think just really, um, I think the pandemic's taught us more than anything. It's life's what happens when you're busy making plans or or not making plans. So, you know, trying to be still as COVID aware and secure within Mm. myself, I'm going to be going out and doing things, but I'd like to, I'd like to get out more. I'd like to be taking a lot more photos uh, seeing places, taking photos—that's that's become a big, big hobby of mine. Um, weird that that started whilst we were in lockdown. So the only <laughs> things I could take pictures of were things in my house. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so there is about thirty photos of like the same guitar yeah. all the time, and not the new guitar either. So, uh, so there's that. There's, yeah. Uh, I think as well. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm self-employed. I've got my own business so it's really about just making sure that the business can keep ticking over mm. uh, making sure my clients are happy and there is something hopefully happening towards the end of the year where I'm working with a, a friend on a new kind of publication okay. as well so I'll be helping him out there and very cloak and dagger yeah <laughs> well it, it kind of is and it isn't it's yeah. it's something that you know we, we've we, we have spoken about online, but it's the way that it's being positioned is a little bit of an ethical GQ. Okay. And it's there to almost kind of say we rebuild. We're all responsible now for rebuilding this new world mm. that we are living in, this new time that we're living in. How do we do it better than what we've been doing? And I think it's about looking at those things and, and kind of saying to ourselves, yeah, we we we're responsible enough to do this. Yeah, let's let's do it. And I think we want to tell those stories of of how people are making things better. We want to focus on the positives. He and I, 
because uh, I know I get into a habit of not focusing on the positive. But now the more I'm looking at all these stories which are being submitted and the ideas that we're doing, it's like, that's that's it. And I, I that's what I want. That's really the plan for the year is to get that off the ground and running as well. Yeah, it sounds like an excellent project. I think, you know, it's it's hopefully the, the one of the only positive things that can come out of this pandemic is people realising that, you know, we, we're all gluttons for just wanting more and more. And when you actually look at what's important to you in your everyday life, you just realise yeah. how much sort of extra baggage and so, you know, little peripheries that you just pick up along the way, which really, at the end of the day, are just not important. Food, family, life, and a house, a roof over your head. That's really what you need at the end of the Precisely. day. Precisely. Precisely. And that's, I think that's been the thing. I think, um, you know, I'm lucky that I've still got my parents and they they don't live very far from me at all, but they're both in Italy right now. And when my father went away last week, it was the first time in 19 months that I was just by myself, mm. uh, you know, where I, I wasn't going around to see them. So it was, the, it was this first time where I was like, oh, what do I do now? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm more than happy for them to be in Italy as long as they want to be. We, we live in completely separate houses. You know, I'm a grown man. I'm perfectly happy. But it did make me think about what the last 18 months has also given us. Yes. Where it's like you need to have those relationships close and nearby and you need to have those things. And, you know, I live in, you know, quite isolated, I guess, as well, uh, living by myself. But I would say that it's that what you just said, precisely nailed it on the head. It's about having a roof over your head, about being grateful for, for the things that we've got. And if that's the biggest lesson that we can all take away from this then I think that's a very good lesson to have. And I think mm. it's about also, you know, just be kind. I've got a rule in my, uh, in my office. <laughs> it's set, and, you know, you might have to bleep this out, but it's, it's rule number one, don't be a dick. Yeah. You, yeah. And it's so basic. It's so basic because it's like, and it's something that I've now taken into this kind of new way of thinking as well. It's like, does it need to be said? No, leave it. Hmm. You know, do do we have to respond to everything? No, leave it. You know, it's it's about just let's be kinder to one another. Let's just be a little bit more simpler and basic. You know, I, I was making last year, last lockdown, I made so much tiramisu for my neighbors. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it was. But then I was getting requests. Going, is, is it tiramisu this week or is it are you, are you, oh, have you made any pasta? So I was making pasta. And I was making extra pasta for people because yeah. it, for me. It made me feel like I was closer with my community and it made me feel better that I was at least doing, I could feel useful doing something. Yeah, you were sort of, you know, something, something to make the isolation feel better to sort of help you feel, you know, connected to the outside world. I think yeah, anything that could be done during that time, I think definitely helped. But it was, yeah. it was the same here. You know, we were forever getting food passes from the families downstairs and cooked meals and things like that. You know, it certainly... Um, helped us bring us closer to the family as well. But yeah. Well, thank you very much, Gino. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Absolute it's, it's pleasure. Been, pleasure's been mine. Thank you so much for having me on. Really, it's been really no, no, great. No, no, no. 
as I say, it's been a food lesson for me today as well. I found out things about Italy. I thought I knew everything about Italy, but clearly I don't. There's so much more to, to scratch at yet. And I will enjoy every single second of doing it. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Uh, makes, uh, makes me happy to hear that. Brilliant. Well, let's say, if you ever do make it over to Napoli, let's say we're only just down the coast, about five, yeah. miles by, five hours by train. But if you do make it down here, doors always open. Please feel free to pop in. We'll make you feel more than welcome. Thank you very much, Craig. That means a lot. Thank you. And if you if you find yourself anywhere near Chester, come on by. <laughs> well, I've got a brother that lives up in that neck of the woods, so I might take you up on that offer as well. Perfect. All right. Well, have a good week. Thanks again for being a guest, Gino, and I'm no doubt we'll see each other soon. Take care. No problem. Take care. Thanks, Gino, for being a wonderful guest. A fountain of knowledge about all things Italian. Our next guest in two weeks' time is the sourdough legend that is Dan Leppard. If you like what you've listened to, please review, comment, and maybe rate us five stars to spread the word. Please also subscribe so you get your next podcast the minute it comes out. Allora dopo!